with you today. We'll be looking at Galatians chapter 3, verses 23 through 29. If you don't have a Bible, that's fine. You can follow along in your order of worship, or you can use your phone or iPad or anything else you'd like. So I say to you, hear the word of God. Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then, the law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian, for in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. This is the word of the Lord. Let's, let us pray. Father, I pray this morning that you would come and open the eyes of the blind and the ears of the deaf. I pray that as we consider um, what it means that you are our Father, that you would break through uh, to individuals in this room, that you would uh, open their eyes to see your great love, your great compassion for them. I pray that you would be in my head and in my thinking and in my heart and in my understanding and in my mouth and in my speaking. In Jesus' name we pray all of these things. Amen. Amen. So it's a week or two late. Um, we're right in the middle of this Galatians series, and I do, I'm not really big on made-up holidays, and I think Father's Day was a couple of weeks ago, but today's question really would have been appropriate then, I guess, if I open, so if I open with this question, the question is, I want you to think of one thing that your father did right when you were growing up. Just one thing, and I'm gonna t I'll tell you in a minute why I just, I'm asking for just one thing, and if, you, and if you didn't grow up with a father, maybe a significant male a figure in your life, maybe it was your grandfather, maybe it was an uncle, maybe it was a mentor, can you think of one thing now, the reason I said one thing is because for some people, it's difficult to think of one thing, right? My parents had divorced when I was five, so, so I, you know, I, I run all these questions through myself first, and I thought, what did my dad do right? Well, he abandoned my family when we were five. But what, did he do anything right? <laughs> and as I look back, my mom said he always paid his child support. That's a good thing, right? I can, I can rejoice in that, I, I guess. But you see, what we tend to, to forget, no matter whether you're liberal or whether you're conservative, no matter what your worldview is, the fact is that fatherhood matters. And the effect that our fathers or significant male figures in our lives have matters. <clears throat> and, and it really informs a lot of our worldview. And so if you didn't have a father there for a lot of the time, how do you, how do you fix that? Right? What if, you, what if you're like me? You sort of grew up, as far as father is going, practically an orphan. Well, there's good news in the gospel for that. Remember, Jesus said, I will not leave you as orphans. He said, I'll come to you. Jesus was concerned that we would feel like orphans. Jesus was concerned that we would understand what it meant to, to actually have a father who loved us and cared for us and, and would do anything for us. You see, we've been looking at the, the book of Galatians, and up to this point in the book of Galatians, Paul, the, the apostle, has been really hammering two big doctrines. Right? The, the doctrines that he's been hammering up to this point are the first, the doctrine of justification, or justification by faith alone, 
which basically says this, that Jesus lived the life we should have lived. He died the death we should have died and rose from the dead. And when he was at the cross, basically all of his, our sin was poured onto him and all of his righteousness is given to us. We received that by faith alone and by nothing else. No works, nothing added. Remember the, 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 the problem Paul was addressing in this book was Jesus plus something. People came along and said, trusting Jesus is cool, but if you add these things, it's even better. And Paul said, absolutely not. We are justified or made right with God by faith alone and nothing else. He's also, been, he's also talked about sanctification. In other words, if justification is the way God starts his good work in you, it's a one-time act that God starts his good work, it's something he does for you, well, sanctification is an ongoing work that he does in you. Right? Sanctification is the other doctrine he has been hammering. Justification is how we are made right with God, and sanctification is how we grow in God, or how we grow to become more and more like Jesus. One is an act of God's free grace. The other is a work of God's free grace. Justification is how God starts his good work in us. Sanctification is how he's going to finish his good work in us, that he continues this work. And if you believe, if you understand justification like no one else in the world, and you understand the doctrine of sanctification like no one else in the world, you still could be a miserable person. Because there's one doctrine in some sense that's more important, at least to our affect or our emotions. You know, in, in our denomination, typically when a, a person is, goes up for their ordination exams, they're, they're there are hard questions, of course, or there are questions they should know that are about theology and doctrine. And the, the one that I appreciate most, the one I enjoy listening to most, is they'll ask the candidate, what doctrine is most precious to you of the Reformed faith or the Presbyterian faith? Is there some doctrine? And it's interesting because almost no one says the doctrine that I think is the most important. People say sovereignty, right? God is in charge of all things, is providence, or they'll say justification. The doctrine that is most precious to me, and I think it ought to be precious to you, is the doctrine we're going to talk about today, and that's the doctrine of adoption. You see, if justification has to do with, with dealing with God as our judge, right? If God is our judge, he has actually come along and he has... has Born the curse for us, and so he is no longer a judge. Justification fixes that. Sanctification has to do with God as our, and Jesus as our Lord. In other words, are we going to live in a way that pleases Jesus? Justification, or, so justification is God as judge. Sanctification is Jesus as Lord. And adoption is God as Father. Do you know that you have a father who loves you and cares for you and do, would do anything for you? That's what we're going to talk about today. We're going to look at three things in um, the text today. Basically, we're going to look at the law as our guardian. We're going to look at God as our father. And finally, we'll look at the church as our family. Right? So the law is guardian, God as father, and the church as our family. All, one thing leads to another in the text you'll see this morning. So first, let's look uh, first at the law as our guardian. Let me read to you verses 23 and 24 again. Verse 23 says, Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified. 
So verse 23, first thing it says is that the law was our, our guardian, or the, the law, we were imprisoned by the law. Or the law, in some sense, the law was our jailer. Now, what does Paul mean by that? Well, basically, look, based on what we've seen before, based, what he's saying is that you can't escape the demands of the law. That the demands of the law are just always there. They, they imprison us. No matter which way you turn, you bump into some failure, usually, of the law or some transgression that we have done. But it's bigger than that. The, the positive thing, if you think about the law, because Paul is not necessarily being negative here. So the negative part of the law is it's like a prison. You can't get away from it. The positive part of the law, if you're in prison, it keeps you from committing a lot of other crimes. In other words, the law definitely has a purpose. On one hand, it imprisons us. On the other hand, it sort of keeps us in check. But there's something else that the law does here that's even more interesting that Paul says in verse 23. He says, we're held captive under law in prison until the coming faith will be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came. Now, the word there in Greek, right? I don't tend to bandy about Greek to impress you, but the word there is important. It's the word pedagogue. And we tend to, to think of pedagogy as teaching and teaching children specifically. And that's why in some translations, it'll say the law was our schoolmaster to lead us to Christ. That's really not what pedagogues did back in the ancient uh, Roman world and Greek world. Basically, pedagogues, so when he says the law was our guardian or the law was our pedagogue, pedagogues in the ancient Roman world were basically hired by wealthy families to oversee boys from the ages of six to 16. And the job of a pedagogue literally and primarily was one thing. It was to get junior from point A to point B, right? And if you know anything about teenage boys, there's a lot, that, that could be quite a challenge. That they would, they would follow them around everywhere, making sure they didn't get in trouble. That's why if you ever look at, at ancient um, at vases and things or paintings of pedagogues, they always have a stick with them. And the stick had a purpose. When Junior started stepping off the straight and narrow, he got a smack with the stick. So the law was our guardian. On one hand, it keeps us from, from straying off the path. On the other hand, the purpose of the law is to lead us from point A to point B. In other words, everything we've looked at the book, in the book of Galatians thus far would tell us that the purpose of the law is not to save you. It cannot save you. The law can show you how you should live. The law can condemn you and make you feel like you need to, to, to trust Jesus. But what Paul is saying here is that the only purpose of the law, the primary purpose, is to get you from point A to point B until faith came. And almost every commentator says that faith here is a synonym for Jesus. That the point of the law was to get us from point A to point B until Jesus came. And once Christ comes, you are no longer under the law. Listen to what he says again. He says, so then the law was our guardian until Christ came imprisoned in order that we might be justified by faith. So on one hand, you have the law, which is constantly overlooking you and constantly with a sort of the stick keeping you on straight and narrow. And it reminded me, this, this passage always reminds me of a story from when I was in basic training in the army. Well, I was in basic training. There was a guy in, in basic training. His name was Tanaka. He was a Samoan guy, and he was a bully, and he tried to run basic training like it was a prison camp. And I'll never forget, my name was A, so that meant I slept near the front of the barracks, 
and there was an intercom at the front of the barracks where if drill sergeants wanted to talk to you, they could talk to you, and you knew that they were going to say something or were listening when the red light was on the intercom. And one night, Tanaka, had, he had KP, which means he was gone after all of us, and he came in the barracks, it was dark, and he started yelling. He's like, all right, suckers, I got Twinkies, I stole them from the kitchen. And he said, the dollar apiece, and he starts saying this, and I laughed as loud as I've ever laughed in my life. He said, what are you laughing at, Alan? And I said, look behind you. And he looked behind him, and the red light was on. <laughs> Guess who was in our barracks 30 seconds later? Drill Sergeant Jones. He took care of Tanaka, right? That's what the law does. The law is constantly watching you, unless you're a Christian, until faith came. Once faith has come and the, Jesus has fulfilled all of the works of the law and he has gone to the cross and borne your curse, the law no longer has a claim on you. The law's claim is temporary until Christ comes. And so now if you're, if, if you're saved, if you're a Christian, if you put your faith in Jesus, now you don't have to spend your life looking over your shoulder, wondering whether you're good enough, wondering whether or not you performed enough. Instead of, anytime you wonder whether or not I've performed well enough, anytime you wonder if I'm good enough to please God, don't look at yourself, look to the cross. Look at the cross, because at the cross what you see is the only person who is good enough to please God, giving up everything for you and for me. That all of his goodness is, is given to us and all of our sins are given to him. And in the gospel, because of that, the, the law changes from being our judge and, and being the, our, the thing that condemns us, and God changes from being our judge to actually becoming our father. That what happens at the cross is that God is, it, it enables God to have integrity, enables God to actually become our father and to, to treat us as his children. And that's where Paul goes next with this. Notice verse 25 and 26. He says, but now that faith has come, we're no longer under a guardian, for in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God. So what does it mean for God to become our father? How does God become our father? Well, the way that God becomes our father is just this, is that, that his only begotten son came and gave his life so that orphans could become sons and daughters but primarily sons. By the way, you're gonna see sons in here, and sons here is a technical term. So whether, if you're a Christian, whether you're a male or you're a female, you are a son. Because in the ancient Near East, sons are the ones who were given the right to all of the father's property, all of the father's uh, clout, everything that the father had came to sons. And Paul says, in Christ Jesus, you are now sons of God. So in some sense, justification is God is satisfied with us, but with adoption, God, what it says is that we now can experience God's fatherly affection. And the question, do you, do you believe that you have God's fatherly affection? Do you ever feel God's fatherly uh, affection? Do you understand that you are sons of God? In my experience, most Christians don't. In my experience, I don't. I mean, let, let me read to you a couple things here. Remember the Heidelberg Catechism, uh, question 26, is probably my favorite. It says, what do you believe when you say, I believe in God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth? The answer is this, that the eternal God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who out of nothing created heaven and earth and everything in them, who still upholds and rules them by his eternal counsel and providence, is my God and Father because of Christ his Son. 
I trust him so much that I do not doubt he will provide whatever I need for body and soul, or he will turn to my good whatever adversity he sends me in this sad world. Now, this is the kicker. He says he is able to do this because he's almighty God. Right? We, we often, you often hear in Christian circles, everything happens for a reason. God is able to heal you. God is able to do anything. The question is, do you believe that he wants to? And that's what the, the catechism says. He's able to do this because he's almighty God. He desires to do this because he is a faithful father. You see, many of us, I, I don't know about you, but I've struggled my whole life. I remember growing up thinking one day my dad is going to come in and save my family from all the things that we were going through, and he never showed up. And at some point I became a Christian and realized that I actually have a father now. I have a father who, who where I feel like I, I, my whole life I wondered if, if, I, if anyone was going to show up to help me. Now I have a father who I know is going to, who promised I will never fail you or forsake you. I will never betray you. I am with you always. I will not leave you as orphans. Does it feel like that sometimes? Sure. But sometimes even as parents we do things for our kids to help them grow, do we not? But the question is, do you actually believe that God has affection for you? That he doesn't just love you in a generic sense, but that he actually cares for you like a father would love his children. Let me give you a quick test. You know, there's a, a ministry called uh, Sonship. I've gone through it twice, actually. Um, and basically, it, it's all about this doctrine of adoption. And at some point, um, it asks questions, right? You, you, there's a diagnostic as to whether or not you're living as an orphan or living as a son. Whether or not you really believe that God is your father or whether or not you don't. So just ask your, which ones of these do you check? So I'm going to read first the orphan and then I'm going to read the son. This is, comes from the sonship material. So if you're an orphan, often the orphan feels alone, lacks vital daily intimacy with God, is full of self-concern. Conversely, a son or daughter, I guess, has a growing assurance that God is really my loving heavenly father. Which one of those would characterize you? The next one, anxious. The, the, the orphan is anxious over felt needs, relationships, money. I'm all alone and nobody cares. I'm not a happy camper. Says that here. The child trusts the father and has a growing confidence in his loving care is being freed up from worry. Are you living as an orphan? Or are you living as a son? Orphans live on a succeed-fail basis and needs to look good and be right as performance-oriented. Child of God, learning to live daily conscious partnership with God is not fearful. Which are you, an orphan or are you a child? Orphans feel condemned, guilty, and unworthy before God and others. Child feels loved, forgiven, totally accepted because Christ's merit really clothes him. Orphan has little faith, lots of fear, lots of faith in himself. I've got to fix this. Son or daughter has daily working trust in God's sovereign plan for her life as loving, wise, and best, believes God is good. Which one of those? As I read down that list, if you said that you checked the right side every single time, I'd say you're a liar. All of us struggle with being orphans, whether, whether we, we, had, we, we had fathers who were absent or whether we had fathers who were relatively good, there are still areas that they missed, there are areas that they messed up. You know, I, honestly, I think when I, my kids were growing up, I think I was a pretty decent dad. But now as my kids are getting to be adults, I'm starting to see areas that I was deficient in 
or areas, if I had it to do over again, that I might do differently. Well, here's the good news of the gospel. The good news of the gospel is because I'm a sinner, I'm never going to make those up, but God promises to come in and meet those needs, not only for my children, but for me, that I don't have to live as an orphan anymore. Do you go to him? Do you run to him when you have problems? I'm amazed in my own family. One of the things I did, I think I did right, I'm, it's starting to catch up with me now, is when my kids were, were little, I constantly preached them, you have not because you ask not. I wanted them to know that their father loved them and that, that their father rejoiced to give them good things. Not spoil them, but why won't you ask? And it's interesting to see how that pans out because one kid never asked for anything. One kid asked for help and one kid sort of was like, eh, why not? She asked for everything. And the other kids were like, how come she gets so much stuff? She asked. Do you have that kind of relationship with your father? Do you feel like you can just go and ask anything? He may or may not give it, but you know you can go and you're not going to be condemned because you asked. Do you have that kind of relationship? Do you understand what it's like for, to have a father who pursues you no matter what? Remember the, the, the parable of the prodigal son in Luke chapter 15? Do you remember how that ended? Right? Remember the prodigal? goes, you know, he goes to a far country, takes his father's inheritance, and he leaves, and he spends it all, we think, on, you know, lascivious women, and and parties, and all of these kinds of things, and eventually, he is so hungry that he is tempted to eat the food the pigs are eating, and he says to himself, I'll, he says, I will rise and go to my father, this is Luke 15, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven, and before you, I'm no longer worthy to become your, to be called your son, treat me as one of your hired servants. So he's cooking up a plan as to how he can manipulate his way into his father's presence. You see, one thing that's interesting is adoption, much like justification and much like sanctification, adoption is also Jesus plus nothing. In other words, your works can't save you, your works can't change you, and your works can't make you part of the family. You never, no one ever works their way into a family. At some point, you have to be graciously received. So the son is sort of cooking up this plan about how he's going to weasel his way back in. And notice what happens in verse, um, he, as he's walking back. It says in verse 20, he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him. And put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. And bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us celebrate. For my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. So what is the father's heart toward you? As soon as you even begin to think about coming back. He's running. In that parable, we know that the father would have borne all kinds of shame because in the ancient Near East, patriarchs don't run. They certainly don't hike their, their, their uh, toga, their skirt up between their legs and run through the village to meet their children. God is willing to be humiliated that you and I might be received as sons. And if you don't believe that, look to the cross. The cross shows us the humiliation of God on our behalf that we might be made sons and daughters ultimately do you believe that do you believe when you know every week almost that and, and i do it on purpose the benediction that i use is from zephaniah 17 or 317 that the lord your god does what the lord your god shouts over you with great shouts of joy now let me tell you something 
He shouts over you with great shouts of joy, not because you are so great. I mean, think about if you have kids or, or, or even if you know people with kids. You know, our kids swam growing up and Judy and I would go to the swim meets and we would always shout for our kids when they were swimming. And you know, to be honest, sometimes they, were, they won. Most times they didn't. They weren't the best. So why do we shout for our kids? We shouted for them for no other reason that we, than that we love them. That's why God shouts over you with great shouts of joy. It's because he has chosen to set his love upon you and he wants you actually to succeed. He wants you to grow in Christ. So all of these things that we have going on that we think are God punishing us, they're actually given to us in order to grow us in the gospel. And here's another thing that put a whammy on me. I remember reading Henry Nouwen on that parable, The Prodigal Son. And he said he does retreats and he asks people when he reads that parable, who are you in that parable? Are you the elder brother? Are you the son? And he says, who are you? And he asked people, raise their hand. And he said, almost 100% of the time, not one person raises their hand when he says, who's the father in that parable? You see, here's, here's the, at least for me, it's a challenge. If the gospel is true and I have a father, that means more and more I can actually start becoming the father. And I remember when I was reading that book, it hit me that I spent my whole life waiting for my, my own biological father to sort of come pursuing me, and he never did. And once I became a Christian, what that meant is if I understood the gospel, that it was now my job to pursue him. Whew. That was tough. And frankly, it still is tough to do. But if the more and more we understand the gospel, the more and more we understand what God has done for us, and the more we turn it around and are able to do it for other people. So that the more we understand what it's like to become, to, to, to be loved by the Father, the more we are actually able to live like a father would live, pursuing those who have offended us, pursuing those who, who don't agree with us, all of these things. So in, in the great news that Paul goes to next is that if, if God is our Father, that means you actually now have a family. And that's where Paul goes next. Notice what he says in verse 27, 28. It's actually a pretty famous passage. He says in verse 27, For as many of you were baptized into Christ and have put on Christ, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. So what is Paul saying here? So he says, for as many of you are baptized into Christ and have put on Christ. The language here is, is probably, it's the same language that the Romans would, would use, and it was called toga barillus. Remember, because he's using this metaphor of a schoolmaster or a pedagogue. And toga barillus was that time when you became a man. And when you became a man, they would take one, the, the, your childish clothes off of you and they would give you your toga of manhood, that, that you put on something different. And Paul says, in and through our baptism, we have now put on Christ. We've grown up now. And that, that what baptism is, in some sense, is being baptized, it's like receiving our, our adoption papers. It's, it's like actually, uh, it, it's an outward physical manifestation of what has happened to us, that we have been adopted into the family of God, that, that we have been uh, marked by him, we have been wed to Jesus, all of these kinds of things. And Paul says, if that's the case, he says, now there is neither Jew nor Greek, there's neither slave nor free, there's neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ. So what does Paul do? I love what Paul does immediately and how relevant the Bible still is. 
Because he says, you've all put on Christ now. To the church, those who have trusted Jesus, you've all put on Christ. And because of that, there is therefore now, there is no, no Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female. What Paul has done is he has actually taken the three, the, the three issues or three areas of contention that have been around since the beginning of the world. So he addresses here um, issues of race, he addresses issues of economics, and he issues, addresses issues of gender. Do you ever hear about those today? Race, economics, or gender? I don't know about you, but that's all I feel like I hear about. Especially if you follow any kind of social media, anything like that. And Paul is taking it on. And it's interesting because, remember, Paul was a Pharisee, a rabbi. And there was a, a prayer that rabbis used to say every morning when they woke up. And the prayer was this. It was basically, God, I thank you that I am not a Gentile. Thank you, God, that I am not a slave. And thank you, God, that I am not a woman. And so it's pretty radical for Paul to say, in Christ, there is neither Jew nor Gentile, slave nor free, male or female. That's a rabbi talking. His life must have been changed. Something must have happened to Paul. It's the same thing that happens to you and me. Now, is Paul saying distinctions don't matter? Is Paul saying being male or female doesn't matter or your position in life doesn't matter? Absolutely not. What he's saying is, is they, they are not the primary thing that define you anymore. That your race or your, your gender, all of these things are not the primary thing that define you. And they're not the primary thing that define you away from other people. What he's saying is if you are a Christian, whether you like it or not, by the way, you have a family. And you don't get to choose your family. And in your family, everyone is equal. You see, that's really important for us to get. Because when you, if you, as soon as you walk out of these doors, and I thought, let me use myself as an example, as, as a white guy, just your average white guy. So if I go on social media or I listen to the news, there are basically two different messages I'm constantly hearing. One message you hear is that because you're a, a, a middle-aged white, you, you're racially superior because you're white. That there are whites, there are literally, believe it or not, people who are white supremacists out there that says, because of your race, you are actually better than other people. Well, you know what the gospel says? The gospel says that, Tommy, because of your race, it doesn't matter. Because of your sin, you might as well be the worst of all people. You have nothing to be proud of because, of because of the fact you are a sinner. You are not superior to anybody. You're not superior to any race. You're not superior to any gender. You're not superior to any job. The gospel humbles us. It should humble us. And it's the same way if you're Asian or if you're black or you're anything else. That you, we are never superior by virtue of our skin color or our culture on one hand. On the other hand, in my case, the other message I hear is because you're a white guy and because of the sins of your fathers and what have you, that you're actually inferior now. And what the gospel says is that, Tommy, you're not inferior to anybody. The, the, the ground is level at the foot of the cross. And it's the same if you're Asian. It's the same if you're black. It doesn't matter. 
In other words, you, you should not feel inferior to anybody if the gospel is true, because what the gospel has done is it has taken sinners, whether they are rich or whether they are poor, whether they are black or whether they are white, it has taken sinners and it has brought them together in one place. Remember Ephesians says that Jesus broke down the dividing wall between the Jew and the Gentile. And because of the gospel, we can then actually celebrate our diversity. Because we're secure in the gospel, then we can actually honor differences between each other. If we're secure in the gospel, then I as a white guy can actually look and say, wow, maybe things are a little bit more difficult for my black brothers and sisters. And I can enter into that. I don't have to be defensive about that. But I, that only is, is available to us in and through the gospel of Jesus. You can only be humble if you realize that you don't deserve anything. You can only actually have, have dignity if you realize that Jesus gave everything for you. Do you believe that? Do you believe that because of Christ, we are one? That because of, of, of Christ, it doesn't matter what your race is. It doesn't matter what your gender is. That we are, we are all one. I'll end with this. You know, last night, I told Judy, I, I said, we got to watch Toy Story 3 tonight. And she said, why? I said, I think there's something in it I need to use tomorrow. I just had a vague memory of something, and I was right. Remember, Toy Story 3 is actually very dark, and I wanted to watch it to prepare for Toy Story 4, to be honest with you. But it's pretty dark, right? Andy's growing up and going to college, and the toys are basically being sorted out. Some are going to the garbage, some are going to the attic, and some, God forbid, are going to the Sunnyside daycare. Remember, Sunnyside daycare is where basically toys go to just be completely abused. Different kids every day. They don't care about those toys. They just abuse them. And at some point, the, the, the toys are taken to Sunnyside, and Woody's saying, we got to get out of here. And they're like, this place doesn't look so half bad. And he's like, he's trying to figure out some way. He uses everything to try and figure out how to get them to come with him. And at some point, he actually looks at the bottom of his foot. And remember what's on the bottom of his foot? It says Andy. And he says, I belong to Andy. He said, lift up your foot, lift up your foot, lift up your foot. Everyone, you all have Andy's name written on your foot. You need to, we need to stick together because we all belong to the same person. That's what Paul's getting at here in Galatians. That we need to stick together, not because we're all black or we're all white or we're all this or we're all that. I mean, more and more God is taking our congregation in a very interesting direction. It's becoming more and more diverse, which is awesome. But what brings us together is the fact that we all belong to the same person. Do you believe that? Think about that. Let me pray for us. Father, I pray this morning that, um, that the gospel would just continue um, to both wreck us and to build us up. That the gospel would continue to convict us and to encourage us. I pray that more and more as people are coming to our church from every tribe, tongue, and nation, that you would um, enable us to remember that we are here because we all belong to the same person. In Christ's name we pray all of these things. Amen and amen.